Good. All right, if you got your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we will be in verses 1 through 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. Uh, the title of our lesson this morning is The Gospel Creed. The Gospel Creed. And if you don't know what a creed is, um, I'll explain that to you here in, in just a little bit. So, quick review from last week. As we said last week, 1 Corinthians 15 is all about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what the whole chapter is about. But it's not written, some people think, well, it's probably written to prove the resurrection of Jesus to Christians, but that's not what it's written for. That's not its purpose. And it's not even written to prove the resurrection to unbelievers. That's, that's, not, what, that's not Paul's purpose uh, behind that at all. It is written for one reason, and that is to prove to Christians that because Jesus rose from the dead, you too will rise from the dead. That means that you will have a physical bodily resurrection, your body, not just your spirit, not just your soul, but it is written to prove to the Corinthians and to you and I that one day your body will rise from the dead. That is what 1 Corinthians 15 is all about. Now, Paul points this out in verse 12. First, verse 12 is kind of the pivot point of the whole chapter. He says this, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead. See, there were some people in the church who thought, okay, Jesus rose from the dead, but I'll never rise from the dead. They believed that Jesus, in the resurrection of Jesus, but they did not believe in the resurrection of the, of the believers. So Paul is going to prove to them in this chapter that yes, even you, every one of us, will rise from the dead bodily and physically. Now, before he gets to that, he needs to lay some common ground. He needs to talk a little bit about the resurrection of Jesus. So he's gonna, what he's going to do in the first 11 verses is he's going to begin by restating the gospel. And he says it right there in verse 1. He says, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel that I preach to you. So this is what he's doing in the first 11 verses is he's restating the gospel. So let's read verses 1 through 3 very quickly. He says this, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel that I preach. Now notice that is what? That is past tense. He's saying, I'm going to remind you of the gospel that I preach to you, which you received, once again, that's past tense, in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered, there it is again, past tense to you, as of first importance, what I also uh, receive. See, what Paul is writing to them in this letter is no different than what he's already told them. You, you all remember when we started this, Paul went into Corinth and he started a church. There was no church there and he started this church and he stayed there a year and a half preaching and teaching and discipling this church before he had to leave. So he was with them for 18 months. And in that 18 months, he preached the gospel. He taught the gospel. He did all this stuff about the gospel. So what he's saying here is, I'm reminding you of that. So this is not the first time that the Corinthians have heard the gospel. This is not the first time the Corinthians have heard the truth. Paul is just reminding them of something that he's already told them. It's like a father. You know, as a, as a father, sometimes you have to sit down with your kids or your sons and you say, okay, I want to go over this with you one more time. 
right? You don't just tell a kid something one time and figure, okay, they got it, do you? You just assume it's going to take multiple times. So we, we repeat things over and over and over. By the way, as Christians, we should all be able to, to relate to this. Do you know that the bulk of our teaching is review? Have you ever thought about that? The bulk of our teaching in, in Christianity is just, is just review. We come in here, I've been doing this nine or ten years, and we've gone through all kind of books. We've gone through Acts and Romans and, and uh, Ephesians and Galatians and, and the book of John, and now we're going through Corinthians. And I'll tell you, we cover the same subjects, what? Over and over and over and over and over again. It's very seldom that we hit on something new. You see, as Christians, what you and I really need is not to learn something new. We need to be reminded of what we already know. Let me say that again. As Christians, what we really need is not something new. We, just be, we need to be reminded of what we've already been taught, of what we've already been, been told. We've got a saying in this, in this class that we use sometimes, you should preach the gospel to yourself every day. Every day you should roll out of bed and preach the gospel. Derek, you are saved because of the grace of Jesus Christ. You're not going to earn your salvation today. You're not going to lose it today. You are, you are saved because of the grace of Jesus Christ. Now go out and walk in it. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Remind yourself of the gospel. We don't need to know something new. We just need to be reminded of what we, what we already know. So this is what Paul is doing. He's declaring to the church, listen, this is what I've already told you. This is what I've already preached to you. This is what you've already received, what I've already delivered. Now, this is the same gospel that you heard from the very beginning. You heard the gospel that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose physically from the dead. Now, let me remind you of it. That's all that he's doing. Now, let's look at verses 3 through 7. He says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Okay, now, let's take a little left turn here real quickly. I think we all know and would all agree that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is, are the two most important events in all of history. Would you agree with me? Nothing else even comes close. Nothing even, even enters the conversation. They are the two most important events in, in, that's ever occurred in the history of human time. But the funny thing is, if I ask you... What date did the planes fly into the Twin Towers? You tell me what? September 11th, 2001. If I say, what, when was John Kennedy assassinated? Anybody? 1963. If I said, what's the, when, when was Pearl Harbor attacked? Anybody? December 7th, 1941. When did Jesus die? Nobody knows. And one of the reasons we don't know is because the Bible doesn't tell us the exact date. But here's the thing. We can actually figure it out pretty closely. 
For example, we know the Romans were excellent keepers of records. They wrote everything down. And so we go back, and from time to time, we are discovering even more Roman records. And one of the things that we know from Roman records is that Tiberius was named Caesar or emperor in A.D. 14. Now, here's the weird thing about this. He was actually officially named emperor in A.D. 14, but he began serving as co-emperor with Caesar Augustus in A.D. 12. So they were kind of like co-kings or co-Caesars. And then, and then Augustus died and Tiberius became uh, official emperor in A.D. 14. So he actually started reigning in A.D. 12. And we know that from historical records. Now look at Luke's gospel. Luke says this, Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. By the way, that's John the Baptist. So when did he start his ministry? In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius. So using the earlier date of 12 A.D., John the Baptist began his ministry around A.D. 27. Now, we know that Jesus probably began his ministry very shortly thereafter, and we know that Jesus ministered for around three to three and a half years. So we know that Jesus would have died somewhere around 29 or 30 A.D. We don't know the exact date, but we know just from those few things that he would have died around 29 or 30 A.D. Now, we also know from Roman records that Pontius Pilate ruled from A.D. 26 to A.D. 36 for 10 years, okay? We also know from uh, Mark's gospel that the crucifixion took place on a Friday during a Passover, okay? And those facts, using the Jewish calendar, allows us to narrow it down even more. If you go back... By the way, you can, did you know that you can go back right now and find the date of every Passover for thousands of years? Because the Jews used what was called a lunar calendar. And by the way, I learned something. I, I just assumed that all Passovers were on Sabbath days, but that's not true. Passovers could fall on any day depending on the moon and some other things. So if you go back and you look from A.D. 29 to 36, those are the dates of the Passovers. And notice that only two of them fall on a Friday. So we know, from we can't narrow it down to the exact one, but we know that Jesus either died on Friday the April 7th of A.D. 30, or he died on Friday the April 3rd of A.D. 33. It's one of those two dates. It has to be. Because we know he's on a Passover and we know he died on a Friday. Okay, so it had to be, it had to be one, of those, one of those two. Now, there are arguments for both of them, and, and scholars disagree. The, the later date would, would mean that Jesus had to have a longer ministry and he had to, would have had to start it later. The earlier date is, seems closer in keeping with the gospel accounts um, that you find in the Luke. Now, so what we're going to do today is let's go with A.D. 30. We don't know for sure. It was either 30 or 33, but let's go with 30. Now, let's say Jesus died in A.D. 30. Did you know the earliest letters or the earliest Christian documents that we have in the Bible that we can date back are the letters of the Apostle Paul? Okay? Scholars date his letters from anywhere from 50 to 60 A.D. Therefore, if Jesus died in 30 A.D., and let's, see, let's say Paul started writing his letters 
in 50 A.D., there is a 20-year gap between the death of Jesus and Paul's first letters. Everybody with me? So, so the question is, what did they do in those 20 years? How were they passing the gospel along? How were they, how were they teaching the gospel so that people could remember what it, what it was? Well, see, keep in mind, it's very difficult for us to understand. We live in an age where everybody in this room, I assume, can probably read and write. It wasn't like that back then. Very few people could read and write. We live in an age where there's books and magazines and newspapers and, and the Internet. Back then, there were no books. Very few people wrote things down on scrolls and they stored them, had to store them very carefully. There was very few written records. People just didn't go to the bookstore and... And, and write a book about something. It just, that was not how it happened. So back then, people had to memorize things. Things were passed down orally. And they were very good at it. See, we're very bad at it. We're, we're very... You everybody play the telephone game where you, one person passes down? We're terrible at it. We get things mixed up because we, don't, we didn't grow up that way. Everything we grew up with is written down. But they grew up with memorization just part of who they were. They were very, very good at it. So one of the ways that they used, because they didn't have things written down, one of the things that they did was they used something called creeds. Now, a creed is a formal statement of Christian beliefs. Do we all know what a proverb is? A proverb is something that we can memorize to kind of pass down a moral truth. By the way, do we still use proverbs today? Anybody got an example? How about birds of a feather flock together? The early bird gets the worm, right? It's things that we use to memorize, to pass down to our children little moral truths. That's what a proverb is. Well, a creed is, is similar, except its purpose is to pass down a set of Christian beliefs. For example, we probably all have heard the Apostles' Creed or heard of it, which dates all the way back to 180 A.D. The Apostle Creed says this, I believe in God the Father, Almighty Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell, and on the third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven, and He sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and from there He shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and in life everlasting. That is the Apostles' Creed. Okay? That, that's been around since 180 A.D., almost 2,000 years. And its whole purpose was to take Christian beliefs and put them in a statement that people could memorize. And if you take a little bit of time, you can memorize that, and that's a very good statement of, of Christian beliefs. However, what most people don't understand is that the letters of Apostle Paul contain creedal statements going back to probably 35 or 40 A.D. And perhaps the earliest creed that we have on record is in our passage today right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 7. What, what we just read a while ago, verses 3 through 7, scholars believe is the earliest uh, Christian creed that's ever been written down. Okay, And here's, there's very many reasons for this, but look at what Paul says in verse 3. He says, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also what received. 
You see, what Paul, scholars say that what Paul is doing is he's passing down to them what somebody gave to him. Everybody with me? He's saying, I delivered to you that which I also uh, received. The words, and, and there's, there's something, that those two words, received and delivered, are not used anywhere else by Paul. He uses them one time, and they are very technical Greek terms. You only use them for one thing and one thing only, and they mean the passing down of tradition. Something that's been delivered to you, you turn around and you pass it down to somebody else. They're very technical Greek terms. Okay? In other words, Paul is saying that, hey, I received this from others, and now I'm passing it on to you. So what Paul is writing here in verses 3 through 7 predates Paul. It's not something that he came up with. It, it's something that was given to, to him. Ulrich Wilkins, who's a New Testament scholar, says this about verses 3 through 7. The material collected here goes back to the oldest phrase of all in the history of Christianity. So what you're reading there this morning in verses 3 through 7, I mean, it goes way back to the very, very earliest Christians. Some scholars even give exact dates. C.H. Dodd, who's a very well-known New Testament scholar, believes... Y'all remember Paul was, was saved on the Damascus Road, right? And he goes to Damascus, and do you know he stays there? Anybody remember how long he stays in Damascus? Three years. He spends three years in Damascus and in that area. And then where does anybody know where he goes? He goes to Jerusalem, and he goes to Jerusalem to meet the apostles. He meets James and Peter, and he stays there 15 days. And C.H. Dodd believes that when he went to Jerusalem, that's when the apostles gave him this creed. This is when they passed it on to him. Okay? So, if, so pretty, pretty much all scholars believe that Paul was saved around 33 or 34. His visit to Jerusalem would have been about three years after that. So if we assume that Jesus died in 30 A.D., that means that creed that you just read would date back to no more than seven years after Jesus' death. That's how, early, that's how far back this statement that we're reading today goes. Now, why? here's the question. Why am I taking the time to tell you all this? What does it matter that this little statement that we're reading in verses 3 through 7 goes back to probably seven years after Jesus' death? We can date it that far back. What does it matter? Why am I telling you all this? Because here's why. Because what you're reading today is important. It was important then. It was so important that they put it together in a creed and they passed it down. They said, man, when you go out and you, and you see somebody saved, you tell them this creed. You pass this down. Look at what Paul says in verse 3. For I delivered to you as of... Read those two words with me. What? First importance, that which I also received. You see, the gospel, Paul is saying, is of first importance. If, you're, if you got your Bible open, you should underline that, that phrase in your Bible. The gospel is of first importance. It is non-negotiable. It is foundation, foundational to everything else that we, uh, we believe. Listen, we can come in this class and we can debate tongues. We can debate prophecy. We can debate baptism. We can talk about all these other theological things, right? And no one is saying, by the way, those aren't important. They are. But Paul says the gospel is of what? First importance. 
It is the most important thing. It is so important that very early on, they put it into a creed and passed it down. It's very simple. It's very easy to remember. Okay? But they wanted everybody to remember the gospel because that is the most important thing. Okay? It was so important, as I said, they, they put it into a creed very early after the death of Jesus and they passed it down through the spoken word. It was important then, folks, and can I tell you, it's still important today. Nothing's changed. Nothing's changed about this. So what I want to do with a few minutes we have this morning is I want to step into this ancient creed and see what it teaches us about the facts of the gospel. Let's look at verse 3 again. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance to the Scriptures. Let me tell you, the gospel first and foremost is all about one person, and that is Jesus Christ. Okay? Listen, you believe in God? That's great. Even Muslims believe in God. The Bible says, James says, even demons believe in God. But let me tell you something, folks. I'm not saying the gospel isn't about God, but the gospel doesn't center on God. The, the, the gospel centers on one man. That's Jesus Christ. I'm often interested when I read, I, I like to read on the internet and read articles, and I'll see an article about somebody having faith, some movie star, or some important person. They, they, they have faith. Well, I'll go read the article. And when I read that article, I'm looking for one word, Jesus. I'm not looking for the word God. I see people throw out God, God this, I got faith in God, God loves us. I'm not looking for that. I'm looking for Jesus. Do you believe in Jesus? See, that's what God the Father wants to know. What are you going to do with my son Jesus? That's what Jesus said. You, you, you believe in my Father, you believe in me. You don't believe in me, you don't believe in my Father. You don't know my Father unless you know me. It's all about Jesus. The gospel is all about Jesus. He is of first and primary importance in, in the gospel. Look what he says. For I delivered unto you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. The second thing the gospel tells us is what this man, this Son of God, did for us. He died for our sins. You know, in our modern culture, it's funny to me, we hear a lot about people being sick, we hear a lot about illnesses, we hear about addictions, we hear about disorders, but we don't hear a lot about sin, do we? Nobody wants to call it sin. But see, Jesus died for our sin. He died for, for that is the reason that he, that he went to the cross. He died for your sin. He died for my sin. He died on the cross for the sins of every man, woman, and child that ever lived. He died as our substitute. You see, the fact is, you and I should have died for our own sins, but Jesus Christ took our place. He took our death that we might have his life. That's what Paul means. He died for our sins. That's his substitutionary death, and that is the heart of the gospel. Let's look at verses 3 and 4. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, and that he was buried. See, the gospel is telling us here that it was a real death. You see, he was publicly executed by soldiers, by the way, whose own life depended on carrying out their duty. Their duty was to kill prisoners. 
And if those prisoners wasn't dead, they could pay with their own life. So they're going to make sure those people on the cross are dead. And one of the ways they did that was by thrusting a spear into his side to make absolutely sure that he was dead. And he's carried away. He's, he's wrapped according to the embalming custom of that day. He's placed in a tomb. He's sealed by a heavy rock with the emperor's seal. And he put guards on it to make sure that nothing happened. And he spends three days inside that tomb. See, all of this is a reminder that what happened three days later was not a resuscitation or resuscitation. I hear people, I've read articles that said, well, Jesus wasn't really dead. He was just in like a coma. And, and he, he came out of the coma and somehow or another he rolled the rock away and got out or some kind of thing like that. But see, the gospel says he was dead and buried. The gospel says this isn't a resuscitation. He didn't recover from a non-fatal injury. He's not just buried alive. He physically died. Now, see, that's all wonderful. If we stopped it right there, that's great. He died for our sins. But see, it's not enough that he died. In fact, if the gospel stopped right there, Paul says this in verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. You see, if the gospel stopped right there, our faith is useless. It's nothing. In fact, Paul goes on to say, you might as well go eat, drink, because tomorrow you're going to die. This is all you got in this life. But see, Paul goes on, verses 3 and 4 again, For I delivered to you as of first importance that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. You see, the gospel goes on to tell us the most important part is that he arose. You see, what makes Christianity different than any other religion is the same thing that makes it true. You see, our Messiah is not like Muhammad. Our Messiah is not like Buddha who's rotting in a grave somewhere. Our Messiah is alive. He's, he's, his bones are nowhere to be found. See, that is the foundation of our Christianity is an empty tomb and a living Savior. Peter Larson said this. I, I just threw this in there. I ran across it this week, and I really like this statement. He said, The life of Jesus is bracketed by two impossibilities, a virgin's womb and an empty tomb. Jesus entered our world through a door marked no entrance, and he left through a door marked no exit. I like that. He came in in a way you wasn't supposed to come in, and he left in a way you wasn't supposed to leave. But, but he did that. That's, our, that's Jesus. That's our, that's our Savior. You know, when you buy something at a store, I was thinking about this this week. We just all finished up with Christmas, and I was talking to my... Any of y'all get to know your delivery guy before Christmas? I work out of my house, so me and the delivery guy got on, like, first-name basis. Hey, hi, Derek, how you doing, you know? And so I saw him after Christmas, and uh, he was telling me about all the returns, right? Everybody's returning everything. And I was thinking about that this week, that, you know... When you go to a store and you buy something and you pay for it, you get a receipt, right, that says paid in full. And if there's ever any kind of issue with that, that oh, you didn't really pay for it, well, you just take back the receipt and say, well, here it is. This, this says that I, that I did pay for it. You see, when folks, when Jesus was on the, on the cross and he uttered that phrase, it is finished, he used the Greek word tetelestai, it's hard to pronounce, which means literally paid in full. You see, the payment for sin that God demanded has been paid, and the empty tomb is the proof. It's the receipt 
that God has accepted that payment. He raised his son from the dead. I, I, accept, that. I accept that payment. The debt is, is satisfied. Let's go on and read verses 5 through 7. He says this, He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. There are three, I'm going to give you, there's more than this, but I'm going to give you three very strong arguments for the resurrection. Folks, the resurrection is everything. You understand that? Romans 10, 9 says, If you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and somebody say it with me, and what? Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Then you'll be saved. You see, if you want to be saved, you have to believe in the resurrection. You cannot be saved without it. It's important. If you're sitting here this morning and you say, well, you know, I like all this other stuff, but I can't really believe that Jesus rose from the dead, you cannot be saved. You have to believe that he came out of that tomb. That's how important it is. That's why I'm so excited about chapter 15 because it's just all about the resurrection. It's about the greatest event in history and how it affects us. So I'm going to give you this morning three very strong arguments for the validity of the resurrection. Number one, Paul says it over and over, he appeared. He appeared. He appeared. He appeared to Peter. By the way, look who he appears to. He appears to Peter who, what? Denied him and said, I don't know him. Scared. A man that was so scared of public opinion, so scared of what the Jews would do to him that he denies Christ. The Bible says God, uh, Jesus appeared to him. He appeared to his brother James, which you may not think is very important. By the way, James is the brother of Jesus who, who in the Gospels believed that his own brother was crazy. They wanted to take him away, have him put away. He did not believe in his own brother. He thought his own brother was insane. And the Bible says Jesus appeared to him. By the way, after that, James would go on to become a leader of the church. He, the Bible says he appeared to all the apostles. Then he appears to 500 regular people at one time. And Paul says, oh yeah, by the way, most of them are still alive. Go ask them. If you don't believe it, go ask them. See, this is Paul's argument for the, for the validity of the resurrection, historically verifiable witnesses. See, this, this creed is written, remember, five to seven years after Jesus' death, they put this creed down, and it's easy to say, listen, go ask them. At that, when, they were, when they were circulating this, James was alive, Peter was alive, those 500 people were alive, go ask them. You don't do that if this is some kind of... Everybody with me? You don't put names and dates down. You just don't. You, you make your story real vague if it's not true. But when you got a true story that you want people to believe, you say, "Go ask those witnesses." Historically verifiable witnesses. I mean, this is very convincing proof of the resurrection. Paul would have never challenged people like this in a public letter that was going to be circulated if those eyewitnesses had not, in reality, seen the resurrected Christ. Number two. Another very strong argument is the testimony of Scripture. Okay? Paul, Paul said this, he was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. You see, the Scriptures, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, <clears throat> testify to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the third thing is changed lives. <clears throat> now, I love this one, changed lives. I talked about Peter. Peter denied him, didn't he? <clears throat> Peter scared 
Peter goes on to be crucified, tradition tells us upside down. He says, yeah, kill me, but don't kill me like you did my Savior. Do it. I'm not worthy to die like he did. Kill me upside down. How about James, a brother who thought he was, uh, in, thought his own brother was insane. He sees the resurrected Lord and he believes. And he goes on to become the leader of the church in Jerusalem and would give his own life. How about all the apostles? We know all the apostles except one died a martyr's death. I remember back when I used to lead the youth group, I would do this from time to time and tell the kids, do you understand something about this? This is really important. Do people die for a lie? Actually, they do. You know those guys over in the Middle East that are blowing themselves up? They're dying for a lie, but they believe it to be true, don't they? We know they're dying for a lie, but they believe it. But these guys, if they were dying for a lie, they knew it to be a lie. Do you see the difference? If Jesus wasn't really rose from the dead, they knew that. So every one of them would have had to be, be, be giving themselves, giving their lives for something they knew not to be true. That makes no sense. Maybe you could convince one guy to do that, but all of them? See, they were willing to die because they had seen the reason Savior. It changed their life. How about Paul? How about Paul? Here was a guy that's going around killing Christians, torturing Christians, murdering Christians. And he completely changes. In fact, he says it himself. Look at verses 8 through 11. Then last of all, by the way, this is not part of the creed. This is just Paul adding this on. He says, then last of all, he was seen by me as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles because I'm not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than them all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. Here's the Apostle Paul, who is murdering Christians. He sees the risen Savior, and it changes his life completely. Did it not? And here we are 2,000 years later, still studying the letters that he wrote to the church because he saw the risen Savior, and he had his head cut off for it. And he was glad to do it. He had no problem with it. What, what changes lives like that? By the way, how do I know also that the resurrection is real? Because I can look around this room and I see people that still been changed today. See, this isn't something 2,000 years ago. He's still changing lives. How? Because he's alive. He's real. I've seen people that I know that... You just don't change. The Bible says you can't change a leper's spots. A leper can't change and take away his spots. There's people who can't change their lives the way that God has done it. He did it because he's, he's alive. Before we close, I've got about seven minutes. I want to touch on two very interesting phrases here. First one is verse 6. And, and we went by it real quick, but I want to just touch on it. It says this, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have what? Fallen asleep. That verb translated sleep is... I won't even try to pronounce it. It's, it's used very early in Christianity as a euphemism for death whenever the Bible speaks of, of, of believers. It never says believers die. It says believers sleep. By the way, its usage by its very nature emphasizes the hope of the resurrection, doesn't it? By saying someone goes to sleep, that means they're going to what? 
They're going to one day wake up. That, so that over and over the Bible says this. Christian doesn't die, we just sleep. Listen, let me tell you what death is. Death is separation from God. That's what death is. Death is not having the life of God in you. See, that is why unbelievers die. Because they are already separated from God and they're going to a place of eternal separation from God. So the Bible always says unbelievers die because they are eternally separated from, from Christ. But Christians don't die because they're all, they, they have the life of God in them. They're never separated from, from God. So physical death in the Bible is always called sleep. By the way, this started with Jesus. You remember the story of Lazarus in John 11? They come and they tell Jesus, your friend, Lazarus, has died. And, and Jesus goes to the disciples and says, our friend Lazarus has what? He's sleeping. Now I'm going to go and what? Wake him up. I like that. I preached that sermon not too long ago. The only difference between your death and Lazarus' death is what? Time. Just time. Lazarus was in that tomb four days before Christ came and woke him up. Some of us may be in the tomb, or the grave four years or 40 years. But Jesus is coming to wake you up, just like he did Lazarus. So Jesus never says, oh, they're dead. No, he just says they're sleeping. They're just waiting on me to come and wake them up. There's another term I want to point out, which I think is very interesting. This is uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 8. Paul says this, Then last of all, he was seen by me, as by one born out of due time. Your, your translation in your Bible may say one born untimely. This is a very interesting Greek word. The Greek word used there is ectromedi. It literally means a, a stillborn or an abortion. That's, that's what that term means. It means a baby who has been stillborn or a baby who has been aborted. So Paul is literally saying, then last of all, he was seen by me, a stillborn baby or an aborted fetus. That's literally what he's, what he's saying right there. Now, why would he use that term? See, Paul is saying that spiritually speaking, he was like an aborted fetus or a stillborn child. He was born spiritually dead, spiritually separated from God. By the way, we all are. Every single one of us is born like a stillborn baby. We are separated from, from God. We are in a state of wretchedness, a state of despair, a state of separation from, from God. You see, Romans 11, Paul says this, but if the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. You see, the same resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead now lives in us. It changed us from a stillborn child to a child of God. A baby that was born dead, he made us alive, he breathed life into us. Ephesians 2 says, though you were dead in sin, he has made you alive. He put his spirit inside of us, and now we are living children of the Almighty God. He did that for us. Paul says, I wasn't worth it. I didn't deserve it. I persecuted the church of God, but yet he did that even for me. See, what we've talked about this morning are the facts of the gospel. Now, here's my question. Do you know them? Do you know them? They're not hard. They're pretty simple. But do you know them? Could you explain them in your sleep? Are you comfortable presenting the gospel to an unbeliever? You should be. As, as Christians, it is the most important thing you should ever have to do. 
It, it, should, it, it should be a part of our lives that we know the gospel facts like nothing else. We know the gospel facts better than we know our sports scores. We know our gospel facts better than we know movie trivia. We know gospel facts better than anything else. And we can, we can, we can not only uh, recite those, but we can sit down with an unbeliever and we can deliver the gospel. Can you do that? If not, you should be able to. Again, there's no more important message in the world. We should be able to explain it simply and clearly to anyone that will listen. Here, folks, is the gospel. You have sinned against a holy and righteous God, Romans 3.23. The penalty for our sin is eternal separation from Him, Romans 6.23. Yet God, His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, died on the cross for our sins, Romans 5.8. He then demonstrated and validated that he was God by rising from the dead. That's Romans 1, 3, and 4. And today he asks you to trust in his person and work for salvation. That's Romans 3 and John 3. Do you know the gospel? First, and, and uh, before you can recite it, by the way, and before you can tell someone else, do you believe it? Do you own it? Is it a part of who you are? Okay? If it's not, don't leave here today without it. Don't leave here today without it. I told a story. I preached down at Sopchoppy Southern a few weeks ago, and um, I, I told this story. The title of our my le me message was, Did You Miss First Base? And, and the idea was, as a, as a ball player, if you ever go to a baseball game, you have a ball player, and he hits a, he hits a ball out in, the, in one of the gaps or something, he runs down to first base, and as he turns first base... He gets about two strides past first, and the thought comes into his mind, did I touch first? And let me tell you, as a ball player, that's an awful place to be, to not know, right? Because if you did touch first, you can go on. And if you know you didn't, you have to do what? You go back. But not to know is the worst, right? Listen, here's my question. First base is salvation. Have you touched first base? See, there are going to be people who have gone past first, circled the bases, and they're going to get to heaven. They think they're home. And they're going to say, Lord, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do mighty works in your name? And he's going to say, what? I, I don't know you. You, didn't, you never touched first base. Guys, first base is salvation. That is, Paul says, I'm telling you today, I'm giving you the, what, what is of first importance. That is the gospel. Have you believed the gospel? Have you touched first base? I don't care if you're here today and you're 15 years old or you're 85. If you're not sure, make sure. Go back and touch first base. Because nothing else is more important. Let's pray. Father.